I think it's imperative as a man, which is tough for some men, to surround themselves with godly men that you can have a conversation with and them say, wait, 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 that doesn't sound right. That's not the way God wants you to go. That are not afraid to say, mm, I don't think that's right. To have men around you that you can be honest with, that are going to be honest with you, and you can walk this walk together with. And that is what's taken me through the dry seasons. Hey friends, welcome to Free and Light, a podcast designed to help you experience the life that Jesus offers. This is Josh, and I'm so glad you're here today. If you've been following along through this season, then you know that we're in the third segment focused around the last part of our phrase, be still, listen, seek well. We spent the previous episodes unpacking each of those phrases, what they mean, as well as what they look like lived out in real time. So what do we mean when we actually say, seek well? Well, recently Tim sat down with his dad, Al, to talk about what it means and what it takes to seek Jesus well for a lifetime. I was actually personally in the room with them as Al's story unfolded, and I can tell you now that in the moments ahead, I believe you'll begin to understand what I mean when I say that this truly was a beautiful conversation. You know, it's so easy today to look around at our immediate surroundings for wisdom and what we ought to do next. We tend to look to those who are in a similar life stage or a situation, and then we emulate what they're doing because it looks and seems successful. The truth is, sometimes it is, but oftentimes it's actually a little bit short-sighted. We don't often look ahead to those who are further along in their journey and get insight and wisdom from them. But what I've found from my own personal experience is that when I do, it is always rich. So what would it look like for you to look ahead and find someone who you could ask deep questions of? Well, I think it might actually look a lot like this. All right, Dad, I got a few jokes for you. Awesome. Dad jokes. What do you call an angry carrot? Mm, I don't know. A steamed veggie. (laughs) Very good. Uh, Why do cows wear bells? Why do cows wear bells? No idea. Because their horns don't work. (laughs) Good job. Good job. All right. This one, you have to get this one. Where was King David's temple located? Mm, I don't know. Jerusalem? Beside his ear. Very good. Very good. Oh, well, I have uh, been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. And uh, we're in the middle of this third part of our season two. And we're unpacking what does it look like to seek well for a lifetime. You know, all of us sitting around the table are 40 something, early 40s. I won't give Kelly's age away, lest she get mad at me. (laughs) But uh, it just sort of struck us as like, you know, we're in the middle of our race. So I thought, uh, not, you're not at the end of your race, by the way, so don't... Exactly. Right? So don't read into that. But I thought, you know, we we can see famous Christians on TV or our pastors or other people who from a distance, we've seen them pursue Jesus. But the reality is we don't know the details of their story because they're, mm-hmm. they're at an arm's length. But I have watched your story unfold for 43 years. Oh, boy. 
Yeah. So I know there's a story beneath the story. Mm-hmm. And so what I thought was, let's sit down and have a conversation. Because I one, selfishly, I just want to hear it because there's a lot of details I don't know. But two, I think the fruit of your life would say that there is a story that we all need to hear that would tell us, model for us, an example, what it is like to seek well for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, Dad, let's start by talking about your childhood. Tell us a little bit about how you grew up and your childhood. Well, my childhood was pretty broken at just about five years old. My parents divorced, which is traumatic for most kids. And shortly after that, during the middle of the divorce, uh, my father lost his leg in an industrial accident at McLeod Steel. So there was a ton of brokenness. And on children, it's just um, hard to uh, deal with that. And of course, my parents were uh, dealing with the hardship of it also. And at that point, I was going back and forth on the weekends uh, from one parent to the next. What were some of the things that you remembered about your mom and dad during that season as a five or six-year-old? Well, there was a lot of arguing and fighting. My father was um, very high-tempered, very demanding, um, didn't have a tremendous amount of patience. So they were you know, constantly fighting back and forth because the handoff each week from one parent to the next was never easy. So I remember a lot of chaos there. But I remember my grandmother was a godly woman. And I remember her cuddling me, praying for me. She was one of the reasons I believe that I received Christ as a young child. Hmm. Once the divorce started, we would go to see my father maybe every second or third week because his anger was just so high-tempered, he couldn't control it. So we spent quite a bit of time with my mom. The good thing about that was she was not a Christian, but she went to church. And at seven years old, I was at Gilead Baptist Church, and um, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart during a altar call, and I went forward and gave my life to Christ. And you grew up poor, very poor. We were on, on welfare most of my uh, young life because we stayed most of the time with my mom. She didn't have a uh, ability to make the money that we needed, so we were on welfare most of the time, and I thought it was normal. Mom did the best she could. Uh, we had food stamps. We were you know, getting uh, money from relatives sometimes. My aunt was a nurse. She would give us our yearly shots, but I never knew what affluence was because we never had it. And so when you don't know what you don't have, it's no big deal. But all my clothes were hand-me-downs. The only clothes I ever got new, I remember when I was about seven years old, I got a new, I guess, suit you'd call it, to go to church. And I thought I was on top of the world. (laughs) My mother had remarried um, when I was about 10. Wonderful guy, not a Christian at that time. He had cancer. We didn't know it. Black lung. He ended up dying about three years later when I just turned 13. So we moved south. My grandparents retired and moved south. My mother felt like she wanted to move with them. So I'm uprooted from this gigantic city to a town of about 500 people. It was really um, Terre Haute, Indiana. No, it was actually Shelburne, Indiana. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. There were two cousins my age that I had never met. And they took me in. All they did down there was hunt and fish, so that's where I learned to do all of that. Hmm. So when you go to Haven and work on the property, it's got to take you back to your childhood. It does. It's that love of the outdoors. Um, I've spent, when I was a teenager, hundreds of hours out in the woods just hunting, fishing, smelling the, you know, the beautiful plants and trees and stuff. It really does take me back. At that time when you moved to Indiana, you know, what was the... 
I guess, status of faith in your family. I mean, you came to know the Lord at seven, but, you know, you're seven. It's not like you have this transformative faith experience at that point. It's just, you, you, you know, you've got assurance of eternal salvation, essentially at that point. Going to church, uh, you know, was grandma trying to follow Jesus at that point? Was her husband? Funny thing is, when I got saved at seven, when I came back from the altar, no one in my family, not even my mother, ever said a word about it. No one said, hey, good job. Um, this is how you pray. There was nothing said. And so now I'm 13, and I'm down in uh, Shelburne, Indiana, and we start going to the church, and they had a youth pastor who kind of took me under his wing and began to help me in different areas. So that was a, a really good thing. But I still struggled because um, I didn't have a father figure. So um, he helped me for a while. And then, of course, as youth pastors do, they move on. And it rocked me. So I think that was when I was about 15. When he moved away, I just kind of got disinterested in the church a little bit, uh, got interested in girls. Not a good combination. So you graduate. You did not go to college. Well, no, uh, no, back up. You, I didn't graduate. You didn't graduate high school. I quit school my senior year. I you, did, you didn't know that. I did not know that. Okay. So I quit. I found a, a girlfriend that I had, and um, I just thought she was it. And so I quit school and became a manager at the local IGA store mm. for a couple years. And I uh, thought I was on top of the world because um, I was pretty good at saving money and investing. I bought a couple um, trailers and um, had people renting them from me, but I wasn't serving God. So there was no peace and joy. Um, and so um, I was kind of floundering in my spiritual walk. So I mean, what were the next couple of years of your life like after you quit high school? Well, I was all about making money. So I worked, uh, this gentleman um, that owned this IGA store trusted me, gave me great liberties, and I, I was as loyal as I could be. I worked and made a ton of money. I bought a couple trailer homes uh, to rent out, and I thought I was on top of the world. But without serving Christ, I was empty. And I was traveling with a band, playing music all over uh, that part of Indiana, and um, had a lot of fanfare, but when I came home at night, I was empty. Bridge the gap between that and then how you eventually come to Michigan. My aunt was a, a Sunday school teacher in Melvindale at the local church there, Mammary Assembly of God, and she taught the young married couples. And so one week she said to her um, class, I've got a nephew, Al, down in Indiana. He's having trouble. I ask you to pray for him. And so they took it to heart. The youth pastor of the church, which was Steve Bach, who was extremely instrumental in my uh, life, he felt like God had put it on his heart to intercede for me. So they began to pray him and his wife, and he was actually in um, Canada on vacation with his wife and his child. The Holy Spirit told him to get up out of bed and go to Indiana and talk to me. He never met me. He didn't know anything about me. He told his wife what he was going to do. He got up and drove straight to Indiana. Um, I was at the IGA store. He knocked on the door. The guy let him in. Over the speaker, I'm in the back of the store. My manager said, Al, there's a gentleman up here to see you. And I'm thinking it's a disgruntled, you know, person that has got some bad fruit or something. When I came up front, I said, you know, can I help you, sir? He said, is your name Al Shelton? I said, yeah. He said, my name's Steve Bach. What time do you get off tonight? I'm thinking, oh, boy, I'm going to get beat up. Yeah, who is this weirdo? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And... Uh, I said, uh, why are you asking? He said, because I've, I've got a message for you from God, and I need to talk to you. Now I'm shaking in my boots, because I knew I was running from God. And so I said, I get off at 10 o'clock, I'm closing tonight. He said, I'll be here. So 
I was really taking my time closing up because I was nervous. So the boss had been gone. I closed everything up, dropped the money, closed the door, turned around, look, and there he is. He's sitting on the coat of his car. And uh, I walked out very quietly, um, nervous, and he said, is there a place around here to get coffee? Well, the only place to go was a truck stop. I said, yeah, a truck stop, but I don't even drink coffee. Mm-hmm. I'm 19. And he said, get in. And so we went across the street to the truck stop, got some coffee. And as the waitress is bringing the coffee, which I don't even drink, he said, this is the deal, kid. You messed up my vacation because God has told me to come down here and talk to you. So I'm going to tell you straight. You need to get your life right with Christ right now. There are no second chances. And he said, you got it? And I'm crying at this point. And I said, I got it. And he said, okay, let's go. He put down a $5 bill, which coffee back then was 99 cents. Put down a $5 bill, we walked out to his car. We got in. He took me back over to the IGA, and he said, see ya. I got out of the car, and that was the last I seen him. Hmm. And I'm thinking, God, is this a dream? Is this an angel? You know, what's going on? And so I went home that night, didn't tell anybody about it, and I dreamed the rapture happened, and I was left behind. So I jumped out of bed. I'm just bawling, you know, with, with all my heart and begging God to forgive me. So I was, didn't know what to do. I didn't know... You know, I couldn't go back with my friends and stuff. So um, I was waiting on God to show me what to do. So in the meantime, I didn't know this, my mother had called my sister who lives in Detroit and said, hey, Al's got a change in heart. He wants to give his life to Christ, get back with the Lord. Is there a job up there available? And my sister said, wow, it just so happens that my brother-in-law, who's a construction guy, they're hiring right now. If he can get up here, this was Thursday. If he can get up here by Monday morning, he's got a job. Hmm. I put everything I owned in that car. I had $155 and went to Michigan. I gave a buddy of mine the trailers. I lost everything, you know, really, and um, got up here in Detroit. My sister said, you can live with me as long as you want until you get your job and get some money and get your own place. The only prerequisite is you got to go to church. What happened was that next Sunday morning, because my sister made me, I went to church with her. We got in and sat, I think, on like the third row. And at that time, pastors all kind of stayed in a room together. Uh, and then when the service started, they came out. When they came out, when the service was started, Steve Bach walked on the platform, and I couldn't believe it. And I said to my sister, that's the guy, because I had forgotten his name. And so after the service, I went up and talked to him. He really wasn't very excited to see me at all, and um, it kind of hurt me, but I thought, that's okay. So Monday morning, the next day, the job fell through. There was no job. And for six weeks, I had no job. But Steve... Um, I had gotten back with him and talked to him Wednesday night, which was the um, midweek service, and told him the situation. And I said, I'm serious about serving Christ. Can you help me? And he said, kid, um, I'm going to let you follow me around. So I went to church seven days a week for the next six weeks. I went street witnessing with him, Bible study, men's prayer group, you name it. And that six weeks solidified a hunger in my heart and a desire to really seek God because I was around godly men and I watched them as they prayed together, as they wept together, as they street witnessed together. It was awesome. Mm. So eventually you you got a job. I did. And eventually you met mom. So I would love to know the story on how you met mom. Oh boy. 
So your mother was 15 years old and she was in his youth group. Wait a second. You were 19 and she was 15? She was about a week away from 16. <laughs> no, she's still a teenager. She was. She was. <laughs> and so um, one of the agreements that I had with Steve when, when he first took me under his wing is I could not date for six months. I couldn't talk seriously to any girl in the youth group. Um, he didn't want me dating whatsoever, just seeking God. And so after the six months, I had been eyeing your mother, but she was... Um, a little aloof. She really didn't pay any attention to me whatsoever. She thought I was a hick. And so, um, <laughs> and I was, I was, I was. So her 16th birthday was there and um, her best friend had invited me to this birthday. And I said, no, I can't go because she doesn't like me. He said, trust me, come with me. That was the first time I got to spend any time with her. And I was uh, stars in the eyes, head over hills. And, and I said, the Lord, I'm going to marry that woman. I went to Steve Bach when my six, the day my six months was up, I went to him. He was in his office. He's sitting by the, uh, his desk um, reading, and I said, Steve, you got a minute. He never even looked up to me. He just said, yeah, what's up, kid? And I said, um, today's my six month, and I want to ask a girl in our youth group to go out to dinner with me. After the Friday night youth service every week, all the kids went to a local restaurant, Denny's, and I was going to ask her to go with me, and I was going to buy her lunch or dinner. And he said, sure, uh, what's her name? And I said, Cheryl Pace. He almost fell out of his chair laughing. He said, dude, she won't have nothing to do with you. And I took that as a challenge. So I began to send her flowers. Um, she turned me down the first three times I asked her. And I thought, nah, it's okay. So um, I eventually won her over. And uh, a couple years later, we got married. Not having a great role model for a dad. Mm -hmm. um, you're kind of on your own. Nobody's taught you how to be a dad. Yeah. Did you have any goals or any thoughts around, you know, the dad you wanted to be with a couple young boys? I knew, Tim, what I didn't want to be because I had had role models in front of me that I did not want to be. And so I began to write down because to me, if it's not on paper, it doesn't exist. I began to write down goals in my life that I wanted. To me, they were very far-fetched. However, I had wonderful men in my life that came in periodically that were role models to me. And uh, when I went to Detroit as a youth pastor, we had a couple men that really spoke into my life, took me under their wing, loved on me. I'm so grateful for that. Parenting was tough the first year because you were not a good baby. Uh, you had colic. I remember... I made up for it after that. Yes, yes, you did. You did, <laughs> you did. I remember um, because you didn't sleep all night until you were 18 months old, me and mom tag-teamed. And I remember one night you uh, just had a, a rough night, and I told her, I'll, I'll take care of him. And I had gotten you back to sleep. It was, I don't know, 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And she's in bed, and I didn't want to disturb her, so I went and laid on the couch trying to sleep and trying to be quiet, just crying. I remember my eyes. I was laying um, face up, and I remember my eyes being full of water, uh, crying, just asking God, you know, um, help me to be the father I want to be. I don't know how to be the father. And I remember I felt the hand of God just cover me. No words, nothing, just, just cover me like he was saying, I got you. And it was, uh, it was an awesome, awesome time. What were some of the goals you had as a dad? You said you used to write goals down. Like, What were maybe your top two or three? Well, my top two or three was, was to be kind and loving, and I did not know how to do that because I came from a family of men who were rough and angry, and it killed me. I just I didn't want to be that, and I didn't know how not to be that. So I had some men that I met with on a regular basis. Uh, Steve Bach was one of those men. And we would have breakfast. 
Uh, we'd just have coffee, which I learned to love. And they poured into my life. So one of them was, was to be a good, good dad. Another one was to be a good husband, which I did not know how to be because um, I thought it was all about me. And it took a little while, but God turned the light on and showed me it was actually about being a servant, a leader. That was really hard for me to take on. And so um, that was the beginning of, of me changing from what the men in my family had been to what I wanted to be. Sounds like it started in those early days in Detroit, but there's a decade of change in between that. Yeah, I think the largest change came from a book I read by Dutch Sheets called Intercessory Prayer, which rocked my world. He talks in-depthly about how the father is the priest of the home, has to be the servant, and speaks godly words over his wife, his children. There's an adage that says um, prayer is what makes ordinary parents prophets that guide their children through prayer. And I realized at that time it wasn't about me. It was about me stepping back and being a servant and loving my kids, not for who I wanted them to be, but for who they were, and my wife for who she was, not what I wanted her to be. That changed my life, and I began to um, allow the Holy Spirit uh, to break me into what he wanted me to be. Our life at that time uh, was very busy, like yours is. Uh, I went to work early, so my only time to pray was at night. And so uh, you guys went to bed because you had school. Mom was always an early bed person, so I put her to bed. There was no cell phones back then. So um, 9, 30, 10 o'clock, the house was quiet, it was dark, and I could have my prayer time. And God began to... Uh, mold me, make me, and break me uh, from what I was into what he wanted me to be. And that was a, a ritual I had for quite a while. I remember being woke up in the middle of the night. I think it was my junior year. And I'm like, what is that noise? Oh, boy. And it was you praying. You're not exactly the most quiet prayer in the world. Uh, <laughs> That's true. And um, I just remember you praying for me by name at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then I started to pay attention, and it was like every night. Yeah, I had, um, I had a lot of men in my life that were prayer warriors. Steve was one. Um, but through my life, God implemented certain people for a year or two here and there that I could watch, and I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be godly. I wanted to, uh, to love my family. I wanted to be trustworthy. There was a lot of attributes that I seen in the Word that um, I didn't have a model for. But God had sent me men purposely to grab them. I used to write down attributes from the Word and from men's lives that I wanted to be like because um, I felt like that's where God was taking me. Uh, I felt like that's where I would be successful. I, I, didn't, I wasn't worried about money and all that kind of stuff. I was worried about being a godly man. That was my, that was my hope. I want to ask you about maybe one of those mentors, but before we do, I just I want you to know like when we were in Florida— and our lives are falling apart. That was the memory that 
I knew what to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were at our wits end and uh, I really thought we were going to get divorced. And I don't know why the memory came back, but I just remember you doing whatever it took to change. Mm. And like anger runs in our family. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Well, it's, it turns out it's from a long line before you, but, and it, that's exactly what it was. It was, oh, well, I got to get up early. This is what I have to do. I don't even know what I'm doing, but mm. I remember you waking me up praying. And uh, I actually think that that's the foundation of where Sequel all started was actually all those years back, you praying that verse in Jeremiah, if you, if you seek me with all your heart, you mm-hmm. will find me. Mm, I love but that. the seeking is done in the quiet places. It's not done in the loud. And yeah. that was the model for me. You didn't say a word, but I knew what you were doing. I knew you were seeking him in the quiet places. And so 16, 17 years later, when my life was falling apart and I had my, you know, my own moment, it was like a, uh, a make or break, you know, put up or shut up. Am I going to love my wife, learn to serve her, not be angry? And I knew what to do. Mm-hmm. Now, it wasn't easy. And it took, yeah. it took a decade. But, you know, a decade of healing and repairing and restoring and that kind of thing. But mm. I often think, like, when I think of the word seek well, I always think of that moment as a teenager. Looking back on your life, I would almost categorize it, and I don't have the date or the time. It was probably more of a season, but it was like a before this season, you tended to be negative. Mm. And then after this season, there was just this posture of positivity that permeate, does still permeate your whole life. Mm. One of the themes that I'm picking up on through through your life is this desire to be as close to God as humanly possible. Mm. Amen. It's been so many years of following God up until that point, where does that passion still come from? Well, I think if you're alone with God and His anointing, you know, comes in the room, there's nothing that can compare to that. Now, your mother is magnificent. She's my heartthrob. But still to this day, that is my number one issue, spending enough time with her and spending enough time with God. Uh, I can go down to the basement in my prayer room and spend hours with no problem whatsoever. And I love spending time with her the very same way. But if I don't spend time with God, I can be, become broken real quick. So you're juggling. And there's demands on our life. And yes, I am retired now. But my wife requires my time. But so does my Lord. And so a lot of times I'll get up in the middle of the night or I'll stay up late when I put her to bed and still stay up and and just spend time worshiping. Um, I love to listen. It's kind of weird, but when I go downstairs in my prayer room, I generally get my Bible set up, uh, I turn my phone off, I turn the lights off because I can just seek well in the dark. And in a few minutes, your eyes kind of get where you can kind of see a little bit anyhow, but it takes all the distraction out. And I can sit in the dark an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and just weep before the Lord, just listen to Him, think about His Word. It's just a magnificent time. Once you get into that rhythm, you don't want to get out. And so uh, you're juggling. Yeah. My life so far is there are dry seasons. Absolutely. And so what I want to ask is, how did you stay the course through the dry seasons? to the seasons where maybe that passion wasn't there or maybe you're out of rhythm? Like, what did you do? Well, first of all, um, 
to have a praying wife who is serious about serving God is a huge blessing. But as a man, I surround myself to this day with um, other godly men. I teach a Bible study on Monday mornings. I probably have 25 friends that I could call anytime out for coffee, pray together. I think it's imperative as a man, which is tough for some men, to surround themselves with godly men that you can have a conversation with and then say, wait, 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 that doesn't sound right. That's not the way God wants you to go. That are not afraid to say, I don't think that's right. I think that's imperative to walk this walk together with Christ is, um, what did he do? The first thing he did when he started his ministry, he got a bunch of men around him. Mm-hmm. I think it's imperative to have men around you that you can uh, be honest with, that are going to be honest with you, and you can walk this walk together with. And that is what's taken me through the dry seasons. I've had men like Kevin Larson who had no problem saying, brother, you're dry. Where are you at? Mm-hmm. Well, how's your prayer life? Have you been fasting? When they can ask those kind of questions, it changes things. Were there any other practices that kind of were transformational for you along the way to kind of get you out of a dry season or any experiences maybe you had? Uh, especially when you guys were in junior high and high school, between you and Steve and Bill, you kept me on my knees. But I picked up uh, fasting once a week. I and mean, the reason I did that was I thought um, it cleared my mind, it cleared my heart, it made me focus. And so most of the time uh, when you guys were in, especially high school, I would fast on a regular basis, sometimes just a meal, sometimes um, no TV for a day, just seeking the Lord, keeping my mind focused on that. That is one of the things, and it's a forgotten art now, um, that I think really carried me through. That was also a practice of Dutch Sheets that I picked up from his book. I think it's imperative every once in a while just to change up things and um, go a different way, and fasting really helps that out. Well, one of the things I discovered in fasting, so I would do a whole day. Mm. So I guess it would be like when I have dinner, then I'm not going to eat again until the, the sun goes down the next day on dinner. Sure. What I started to realize is the first three or four times are really hard, uh, mm. really physically hard. But I discovered a dependence on God about a month in that was unusual. It is the only way I knew how to say it. Like, it was beyond just clear. It was, if he doesn't help me, I'm not going to make it through this because I'm just, Amen. like, I want to be the best version of myself while I'm interacting with other people. Mm. And I knew I just didn't have it in me because, you know, you're physically depleted. Yeah, It's a profound practice. It is a lost art. Mm. Um, we don't talk about it around sequel because we haven't practiced it long enough. Um, there's some good resources out there for that. But Doug talks about it in his book, mm-hmm. yeah, Intercessory Prayer, yeah. If anybody looked at your life, they would say, uh, didn't have a dad who was present at all until maybe the last five years of his life, right? You cared for him as, as he was dying. Mm. Um, didn't have a dad, divorced parents, moved around, rough kind of high school to, you know, rough couple of years after that. Uh, you lost your job in every recession we've ever had in this country. I did. <laughs> Steve and I weren't easy. We both had our moments of, you know... No. And Bill, your third son, right? I mean, <laughs> right. all three of us Love had our, our moments of testing you guys and and long seasons, actually, all three of us, long seasons of, you know, I would imagine you're like, are, are they going to be okay? Mm-hmm. Um, our cousin Courtney was killed by a drunk driver mm-hmm. when she was three and, you know, I think I was about 10 or 12. Yep. Um, we've lost family members to cancer, numerous family members. Just there's, 
it's not been an easy life. And you were a truck driver for 30-something years, which is a very difficult profession. It was. It's not been an easy life is what my point is. And there's there were disappointments along the way. What were some of the biggest disappointments that you had to you know, wrestle through? Well, I think losing my job. Uh, you know, I worked for General Motors in the 70s, early 80s, and lost that job because of uh, my plant moved to Tennessee and we weren't willing to go with them. So taking on a new career. At that time, I felt like I was a little bit of a disappointment to the family because I had lost um, the job as a breadwinner. Losing my job again, Consolidated Freight, we went belly up. Um, those were some tough times. But to this day, I regret the fact that I wasn't more of a dad when I was when you kids were younger. If I knew what I know now, I could have been a much better dad. Um, can't go back. That's okay. I can still be the grandfather that I need to be uh, to my grandkids, and I can still be the father to my adult children that I want to be. But um, if I could go back, I wish I could. That was a little bit of a disappointment uh, to me. But um, by and large, you know, uh, we had so many uh, bumps in the road. I just just kind of got used to it. Do you remember the day um, when they called me and I lost my job with Consolidated Freight? Well, you answered the phone. Mm-hmm. You were, I don't know, 16, 17, 18. Mm-hmm. And you said, Dad, there's a guy from work. And I, I answered the phone. We were uh, working, doing something together. And he said, uh, plant closed, you lost your job. And I said, oh, okay. Um, he said, um, call in Monday and we'll talk about it. I said, okay. So I put the phone down and you said, what's going on? I said, I lost my job. You said, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to go back and work in the yard like we were supposed to do. No, I mean, what are we going to do? I said, son, God's going to make a way. Mm-hmm. By that time... We had had so many bumps in the road. It was just like, God, you've been faithful forever. I know you're going to be faithful. So um, you just learn to deal with them. I do remember that. Yeah. I've actually thought of that a few times because I, one of the things that a mentor of mine taught me 10 or 12 years ago is he's like, you have to decide how you're going to react to bad circumstances before they happen. Absolutely. He's like, they're going to happen. Mm-hmm. So when things don't go your way, how are you going to react? Absolutely. Are you going to blow up and get mad and curse God or you know, be angry at people? Or are you going to say, hey, this sucks, I'm, I, but I trust you? Yeah. That mindset shift was huge for me. And I saw that in you when you lost your job. I saw that when you ran the black van uh, into the mailbox. Oh, <laughs> I think Bill and I talked about that at some point. I um, ran over the, the front light. Yeah I, yeah, I think we talked about that in an episode. I mean... And just, you know, it just there there came this point where it just didn't bother you anymore, or, mm-hmm. or at least that's the way I interpreted it. Um, yeah. Bad stuff is going to happen. The overflow of your personal intimate connection with God has been the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. You know, Galatians 5, 21, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, mm-hmm. long-suffering, and, and on and on. And as we were talking about, you know, who models that? There's a lot of people that model that, but what I know is you and mom both model that. Mm-hmm. You're not who you are without mom. We, we both know that. Amen. But I have seen the details of your life play out to some extent, and I know there was this intimate, close connection with God. The overflow of that has been a love for God that is aspirational to anybody who knows you. Mm. But the other side of that is loving others that is aspirational to anybody who knows you and mom. Mm. Very few people will ever know how you guys have invested in the kingdom of God. Uh, and you don't have a lot. I mean, you're not wealthy. 
Nope. So it's not a financial thing. Right. You know, it's the investment into other people. It is the priority of your life. When did that start? The basis of our life now, when we are a little bit older, is to pour into people. Love people, pour into people. People are the only thing you can take to heaven. And so, uh, quite frankly, it's messy. When you start pouring into people, um, they start opening up and telling you the life story and what's going on. It's very messy. But the returns are unbelievable. When people come up to you and hug and say, me and my husband are back together, Uh, my child has finally came home, my husband's not doing drugs anymore, those type of things, um, you can't buy them. You can't earn them. They just come through pouring into people's lives and loving on them and giving them your time, which is your greatest asset. And we found that to be true. It's worth it. Could we be doing other things? Sure. But there's nothing as rewarding as that. And I, I believe Christ wants us to be his hands and feet. I believe that's what he would do also. You have served us so well, and you've decided that you're going to come to us and you're going to support our dreams and our goals. Where did you learn that? We had made a decision years ago to support you guys in whatever you do. didn't have to be what we wanted you to do. So as you begin to blossom in different areas, we had decided to uh, be the fly on the wall. I don't want to be in the limelight. I don't want actually anybody knowing other than you and Kelly that we're supporting you. It's just how can we support you to make you more effective for the kingdom of God? And so um, I get to uh, with Brian. We go out on a regular basis and go to Haven. Nobody knows we're there. Uh, We're cutting the grass, trimming trees, doing whatever you need us to do, the list. And we're praying the entire time we're there. Me and Brian always uh, start in prayer, and we pray the entire time we're there for whoever's coming, whether it's a visitor or whether it's one of your people that are in in, uh, Sequel, that the Holy Spirit would be there, that lives would be changed. To me, that's, there's no greater honor to be able to, to be there so nobody knows but God. We chuckle every time we leave there and we stop and get an ice cream that you buy us, that we've had an opportunity to minister in the kingdom of God and nobody got, gets the glory but God. That's the way it's supposed to be. Your mother's as good or better at that than I am. So that's just something we um, chose years ago to do. And we've seen the fruit of that, specifically with Sequel. Mm. And it, it is just been a blessing for you guys to just support us and love us. And that extends to Josh and his family and everybody. Bill and his family and everybody yeah. on our team because whether they know it or not, you guys are praying for us all the time Amen. Uh, and the you know hundreds of men and women that God's entrusted to us over the years. Mm. Your life has not been easy. I kind of summarized that a little bit before. But I will say it's been full. Amen. Like you, you are experiencing life to the full, the abundant life. You're not wealthy. You know, you're you're not riding in private jets or flying first class or going to these exotic destinations, at least not very often. Mm. But you have a full life, Mm. and it comes from intimacy with God and the overflow of that being pouring into other people. And you are seeing fruit from that. And I actually think if most of us got quiet, alone in a room, shut off the lights like you were talking about, and just sat and invited God in and said, hey, what should my life be about? I think we would all come to that verse uh, in the New Testament where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love other people just like yourself. That is the mission of our life, but it's not easy to stay the course. Amen. So if I had to ask you, or I am asking you, how do we seek well for a lifetime? How do we stay the course? Well, I think the number one thing is getting your priorities correct, Um, realizing that without Christ, you're just going through the motions. You're not going to have 
having any kind of a, a large effect on the kingdom of God. So priorities are, are first, and that means quiet time with Christ, and that means making sure you're spending time with Him in the Word, in prayer, or just listening every single day, loving those people who God has put into your life around you with all your heart. The Scripture says, He that is servant is greatest in the kingdom of God. And when I think about that, something me and your mother say on a regular basis, we're absolutely overwhelmingly rich, not with money, but with the camaraderie we have with our family, with, with our church, with the positions we have doing different things. We're rich, and it's because we separate our time and make sure there's time for God. I think that's the number one thing. Uh, putting yourself behind as a servant and, and loving those around you. And I think that's a, a perfect remedy for um, a happy life. Free and Light is a podcast of Seekwell Ministries. We believe that life to the full comes out of an intimate connection with Jesus. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit us at seekwell.org slash donate.